Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, host of this podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I believe that leadership is about who we are being as much as what we are doing and that when we combine our brilliant minds with the emotional engagement from the heart, we can solve all of the world's problems. In this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of disruptive change and ask them how leaders can position themselves for the future. Find out what this week's leader has to say. Anne Hyatt is a leadership strategy consultant working with scale-up companies to create rapid growth. Anne talks about personal and professional change and the skills needed to navigate the uncertainty of change. She advocates a need for an insatiable curiosity and draws on her experience of working with Jeff Bezos at Amazon to demonstrate how companies can grow through a recession, through innovation and technology. I particularly liked her phrase, having talented people is more important than a solid business plan because your business plan can pivot, but you need talented people to deliver it. Have a listen. Hi, Anne. Thanks for joining me today. Can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, I'm Anne Hyatt. I am a leadership strategy consultant. I spent 15 years working in Silicon Valley, and now I've been based in Europe for almost exactly five years. And now I work with CEOs all over the world who are facing all the wonderful challenges that come with scale and rapid growth. Okay, well, let's come to the scale and rapid growth in, the, in a moment, but um, I'm already hearing there one, an uncertainty of moving from the US to, to Europe. <laughs> so what, what brought you to Europe and how was that in terms of managing the uncertainty of the move? Well, that's a long story. The short version of it is that I married a Spaniard. So I'm based in Spain now in his region, but I've lived in Europe before. Actually, I moved to Sweden when I was in my early 20s and spent uh, just about two years there. I lived in the UK for a little while while I was still at Google. And But this is the longest that I've lived in Europe. Five years is a long time to be away from home, especially during pandemic years. Um, but yeah, they, with each time you you move or you're learning a new language or assimilating to a new culture, you definitely learn something new about yourself. Mm -hmm. And that always involves facing a lot of uncertainty, things that make you nervous or uncomfortable or situations that are a little bit unpredictable to you. Um, you know, that's a lot of my career has felt like that, but doing it in your, in your personal life and kind of jumping with both feet has, has taught me some new things about myself, even though I've done it before. Yeah. So what are some of the skills? skills that that you've developed over the years in terms of diving into the uncertainty and, and being out of your comfort zone? Oh, I mean, my nature is very timid. My my nature is to play it safe and only do things that I can do perfectly because I really care what other people think about me. Like to a fault, I'm a perfectionist. But I've really I'm grateful that my life has nurtured me out of my nature. I've had to be in environments where you have no choice but to be brave. You have no choice but to work on really hard things that you've never faced before and just experiment, fail, try, try again. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually grateful that my life did not allow me to play it safe because that would have been my natural instinct to do. But being brave and, and learning fast and trying on things that you've never done before has actually given me the greatest joys of my life. So I'm I'm very grateful for this unexpected path that I've been on. Yeah, and you've brought in the the word fail quite early, and and mm. and I'm loving the dichotomy of that with the, being a perfectionist. And I'm wondering <laughs> how that is for you to to fail as a perfectionist. 
horrible. I mean, painful every time. <laughs> we we use the word word failure in technology a lot, and mm. really, when a tech person uses the word failure, that actually just you can substitute that for learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, technology celebrates failure, not because it isn't painful every time and we don't care, but it's really because it accelerates your learning. There's so much that you can unpack and patterns that become even more obvious during failures than sometimes in our successes. And so that's something that I've learned from the best. You know, I I started in tech at the dawn of the internet. My very first job after undergrad was working at Amazon in 2002 before it was profitable while we were still inventing e-commerce, let alone the gold standard of e-commerce that it is today. And in those environments, I was surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world who were doing really hard things that had never done been done before. So there was no playbook. There was no best practices. We just had to experiment, fail, learn really fast and try again. So I saw that modeled for me by the people that I really admired, these you know incredible executives who are just trying to invent the future. And so that's a really positive environment. You have a lot of psychological safety mm-hmm. when it's being modeled for you from the very, very top. And so it gave me license as a very young person, the junior most person at the company to exhibit those behaviors as well, to just do my best, learn really fast and never make the same mistake twice. That's, that's a differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And and do you think there's something there around the, the company culture that, um, that actually makes it, as you say, psychologically safe to fail versus some organizations where if it doesn't feel safe to fail, then, um, then it's much harder for people to, to do that and therefore embrace the learning. Completely. The number one element in an innovative company is first that psychological safety where you want it to feel like you're, there's no expectation to get a hundred out of a hundred every single time. In fact, um, you really want to see people pushing the boundaries of their abilities and that involves a lot of experimentation. And then the second thing is insatiable curiosity. I think curiosity for curiosity's sake is a common denominator among the technologists that I've worked with and these high impact CEOs. They're just, they ask like a hundred more questions than the average person would. And it's it's really interesting to see how going further and further down the rabbit hole inspires everyone to look at something from different angles, especially the experts in the room who just feel like they already have the playbook for how things should be done it brings in this novice factor, even among those experts to help you see things differently and anticipate not only the problems you're trying to solve that are underfoot today, but really anticipate the needs of the future, um, which is a different way of thinking. And it's been really fun to be exposed to those kind of moonshot thinkers. And and it's interesting because, you know, some of the language that you're using around psychological safety, I think you know, many organizations are talking about that, but, mm-hmm. but not many are talking about insatiable curiosity. I think you're entrepreneurial organizations are probably talking about that more and probably modeling that more than perhaps some of the the older more traditional organizations who are also hungry for change and innovation Mm -hmm. What, what would your advice be to some of those organizations that are perhaps don't have that insatiable curiosity and that ability to fail and learn from it at the core of their culture well, I think that's such an important question. We could talk about that for the next 10 hours. I think it's really important, especially right now, we're in or entering a recession. A lot of leaders are having to be very thoughtful about how they spend their budget, what employees they keep and incentivize. And um, 
something that I see happening right now that's very concerning to me is we're seeing some hiring freezes and simultaneously cutting of budgets for learning and development. That I think is a recipe for disaster. You cannot do both because what you want, if you want to survive in the long term, that means you need an innovative culture. You need to be doing things differently and anticipating a very rapidly changing market. And you do that by first attracting really, really smart people. The quality of the people matters far more than your business plan um, because that business plan can pivot and change over time. But what you really need is smart people that you can teach to do anything. And those smart people are really self, what's the word I'm looking for? They really seek out and value that um, engagement. They they seek out opportunities to advance their expertise, to really expand the circle of, of their experiences and show up in the world in a really meaningful way. And so if you want to not only attract and hire, but retain and engage and promote those kind of people, you need a culture of continuous learning and development. And that can't just be something, there's a couple of ways I've seen this work. First is like at Google, they give all of the engineers 20% of their time to work on anything they want. You don't need your manager's approval. It's just smart people um, who are working on interesting things. And so they're given some parameter to you know, use company resources to explore things. Major projects, um, products have come out of those 20% projects. Like Google News, for example, was a 20% project of an engineer on September 11th when he was trying to figure out what on earth was going on in New York. And all of the news was very fragmented because it was coming in so fast. Um, uh, Google Earth is another example of that. So there's one way where you can just give them freedom of exploration where it's part of your culture to read interesting things, maybe have a lunch and learn where there's a book club or something when employees are just kind of like self-motivated. And then I think that should be supplemented with incentivized and um, well-funded learning and development programs where you're bringing in experts, you're up-leveling maybe technology skills or giving people public speaking courses if they're, you know, maybe in marketing or, but you really want to show your employees that you're going to invest in them on the long long term. Um, there's this saying in in Silicon Valley that I'm sure you might've heard before, but it says, um, imagine this conversation between the CEO and the CFO. When the CEO says, we really need to earmark a big chunk of our budget for learning and development. The CF CFO says, well, what if we train them up and we leave and then they leave? And the CEO responds, but what if we don't and they stay? And I think that's a nice encapsulation of where we are right now. You don't want people staying who are just going to sit in their little box and never grow and expand. And it's in everyone's best interest, the company's interest and the employees that we have a culture, not only where we say we celebrate, you know, failures and we give you safety to experiment, but they're really invested in your growth in the long term. I think that's something I really like to see, especially right now when budgets are tightening. Yeah, and it's and it's tricky because as you say, budgets are tightening and that and there is a recession and and these organizations have got to satisfy their shareholders. Mm -hmm. Shareholders are wanting increased profit, even though there's a recession. And and so there's always this tension, isn't there, between the available finances and what the the actual needs are. How do you support your clients with that, with that balance? Well, I think they would all laugh right now as I am. Because uh, my go-to move is I love to send them Harvard Business Review articles. So everything I do with my clients is bespoke. I'm the opposite of McKenzie. You're never going to get a PowerPoint deck from me. There's no recycled materials. However, I do have some favorite articles that I that I go to and that I give to them to give them the data-backed 
um, research that's been done on whatever challenges they're facing. So what I do is I look for the data. I am an insatiably curious person. I, in fact, I protect the first two hours of my day just for learning in it, um, especially in technology things change really, really fast. So I read a lot of articles. I listen to very technical podcasts so that I'm um, on the forefront of what's happening in technology. And I read a lot of academic articles around that. So first, I model that behavior for them. Second, I pass that data on to them so that they can interpret it on their own. And then when we come back together in the next session, we react to that. We tailor uh, that data for the needs of their organization and their team. And so that gives us a really balanced approach. We And this is actually something I learned from Jeff Bezos. This is how he runs his meetings. We identify the problem. We outline uh, what data needs to be gathered so we can make informed decisions. We present the premises upon which some educated guesses are going to happen. Because when you're in tech, there's a lot of things we don't know because it's never happened before. And then you go through your risk tolerance. You say, okay, this is the educated best bet we're going to make, but here's how we're going to measure if that has been effective. So going back to your question about how can companies feel confident in investing in their employees when they really have to defend every single dime to their investors and shareholders, I think that's how. Because very quickly, in my experience, you will see a return on that investment. And it honestly doesn't have to be a big spend. You don't have to be bringing in McKinsey consultants or you know very high ticket items to um to really invest in your employees, you can do a lot of things for free or for very low cost that one, demonstrate that you care about their progression, not only within your organization, but for their career long-term. And two, it really forms a very strong culture where they start bonding with each other when they're learning and experimenting. It creates this kind of familiarity and safety and investment feeling. And I think when you find that not only do employees stay longer, which we know is more expensive to hire a new employee than to just retain the ones you have, but you also get this longevity and this side effect of that kind of natural psychological safety. When everyone's experimenting and do, doing new things next to each other, they feel safe to do that, you know, even in a budget meeting or something. Do you think we need to teach people to learn or to relearn? Because I think as children, we, we're naturally insatiably curious, aren't we? And then, so true. <laughs> and then over the course of our education, somehow it gets drummed out of us. You know, we're told to stop asking so many questions. Mm-hmm. We, we, we hold more score on getting things right and passing exams and doing it right first time than we do on the fail, learn do, do you think as adults, then we need to be able to relearn and particularly now as, you know, we've, we've not got the standard nine to five industrial age anymore. We've got a very, very different working environment. Do, hmm. do you think we can teach people to be curious and to, to learn how to learn again? I think that's such an important question. And yeah, my answer is yes. I really think so. What came to mind when you were describing that is this incredible book I read, I don't know, 15 years ago that I think is a, it's one of those sliding door moments in my life where it really changed everything after. And it's called Mindset by Carol Dweck. Mm -hmm. She's a professor at Stanford and she outlines exactly this, how this kind of natural curiosity and this incentive to learn is actually a mindset. So Mm -hmm. what we're, yeah, Kids have this uh, learning mindset, right? They just, they're asking why, 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 why all the time. Mm -hmm. And then they're taught in school to think with a performance mindset where you're getting graded a hundred out of a hundred is the goal. You, you don't want to take a class that's too hard for you because then you're not going to get a good grade. 
But um, that's really detrimental to being innovative or really actually happy, you know, to explore the the boundaries of your understanding or, or your comfort zone is where success and fulfillment and um, reward really sits. So she outlines um, a performance mindset is that belief that you were put on this earth with this finite set of talents. Anything outside the boundaries of that comfort zone will just expose you as an imposter. This is where imposter syndrome comes from. However, a learning mindset is somebody who believes that they have a certain amount of talents right now, but with investment and um, experimentation, they can then grow those talents and have more assets down the line. So anytime that they fail now isn't an exposure of of their limitations, but is actually stretching those very uh, limitations so that they can show up in a bigger way tomorrow. That for me was a light bulb moment because as I mentioned before, I'm a natural perfectionist and I absolutely was terrified of, of saying something stupid in front of people I really cared about or, or being exposed for, for my weaknesses. But that concept, even if you get the book and just read the introduction, Mm -hmm. I am confident that all your listeners will have a, a similar light bulb moment. If you want to be in that learning mindset, it's more fun. It's more expansive. You lead a more adventurous life and you really let go of all of those self-imposed limitations that you thought were imposed by other people, but are all just internal dialogues. And I think that's how you teach people to be curious because mm-hmm. you remove the fear around, you know, asking a stupid question or trying something out that you're not going to be good at the first time. And I really think that this comes down to this over-polished, over-filtered, you know, perfectionized version of social media that we're all seeing. We're seeing these one falsified versions of other people's lives, but two, often it's the end of their journey and you can't compare day one of yours or the middle of your story to the end of someone else's. And so I think, shifting and being aware of those mindsets um, can be really, really helpful in removing some of those barriers and those fears that we have around curiosity and learning. And it's so it's so important, isn't it? Because um, there's there's a vulnerability that then comes, particularly as, a, as an adult, of a vulnerability that comes with learning. And, and in order to be able to learn and to be curious, you first got to accept that you don't know everything. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that, I think the older, you get it's the harder that becomes um what would you say to senior leaders who are perhaps you know towards the latter part of their career but in very senior positions that perhaps haven't been exposed to you know some of the thinking around psychological safety and insatiable curiosity what would you say to some of them who are feeling exposed and and vulnerable about the idea of of daring to fail and 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 learn from the process I understand that instinct for sure. Um, But what I've seen is an inverse correlation between that and actually being an impactful leader. So those who are much more authentic and open and vulnerable with their teams, who are unafraid of their idea, the limits of their understanding, being exposed, and who really encourage that debate, have far greater returns than those that play it small and and safe. I one example that came to mind, I haven't thought of this in a couple of years, but at the very, very beginning of the pandemic, one of my consulting clients, obviously they, everyone was in crisis mode, uh, of course, and he was no exception. And um uh two weeks into into the pandemic, so I'm I'm thinking this is like first week of April. Um, his young daughter was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. I think she was about 10. So this is 
a wildly disturbing, unnerving mm. moment in time, especially for him and his family. And he didn't know what to do. His company was in massive crisis. His family, of course, was in massive crisis. And um, I had a, a coaching session with him right before he was going to get on stage and try and give his his team, like, what on earth are we going to do? How are we going to survive a, a lockdown with no deadline? And what he did was he got on stage instead and shared what was happening in his life. And he was just like, you know what? Like this pandemic is reminding us of what's really important. And you are really important to me. You, your mental health, just feeling safe here that you've got a community of people who are going to support you. That's my, and I cannot tell, I have literal goosebumps right now. thinking about this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, that's what they needed to hear from him. Not mm. some semblance of like, you know, here's data or this cold, cold, hard plan of like, I, no, they needed to know that he was human, that he was feeling all the fears and confusion and questions just like they were. And that team rallied. I have to tell you, like they really, they actually, their um, performance that year exceeded all their preceding years. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of that, that he led with compassion and authenticity and allowed everyone to feel what they were feeling. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he needed a lot out of them. They had to do some heroic things while at home, you know, when we were all setting up our home offices for the first time and kids are around you and everything's chaotic. I think that is what led to success much more than any kind of like PowerPoint presentation or strategy. He, he could have mm -hmm. done that day. There's, there's so much strength in vulnerability, isn't there? And yet it yeah. takes such courage to, to go there as a, as a leader. Um, in terms of the, the companies that, that you're working with and the, the types of companies you're working with are, are high growth and, and they're scaling up, mm -hmm. what are some of the characteristics of them that other leaders can learn from? We've definitely covered the top. I think it one, it comes down to the quality of the people. Uh, when I see companies going from a startup to scaling, everything breaks because <laughs> that's what success looks like in periods of rapid growth. So that humility is really, really important. Uh, mm -hmm. Remaining curious and asking yourself, is there a better way of doing this? Or is there, you know, has there been a change in the market that we really need to lean into? Rather than following and falling in love with their proposed solutions, they fall in love with the problem. I think that's something that everybody can learn from, whether you're an entrepreneur or the CEO entrepreneur of the company, just really continuing to reevaluate some solutions. Um, Sorry, can I just yeah. pick up on that a bit? So for, you, you said, I think you said falling in love with the problems rather than falling in love with the solutions. Can you say more about that? Mm. I'm plagiarizing one of my bosses, I'm sure, because this is definitely the way that they led at both Amazon and Google. Um, so for example, in technology, especially things move very, very fast. So you have to think about, and if you're solving for problems in the future, things are going to inevitably change between now and then. So what you need to do is remain flexible in what the best solutions might be. So when you fall in love with the solution that you've proposed, that becomes your rock. That's your foundation and everything else is expected to flow around it. That's not actually how life and business actually works. If you right. fall in love with the problem you're trying to solve, um, then you continually reevaluate, is this proposed solution, is this product, this service that we're putting out into the world, addressing that accurately? Because inevitably over time, the way you want to solve that problem changes. For you know, the very famous example of um, Henry Ford when he was inventing the car, um, his banker literally told him like, that is the stupidest plan. In fact, when um, Henry Ford was getting his lawyer to invest in the company, 
the same banker told his lawyer, don't invest in it. The horse isn't going anywhere. And, you know, that is not, I can, they're not, (laughs) (laughs) they remain very important, but in different ways, (laughs) but they, um, that is an example of falling in love with a solution instead of the problem. The problem is how do we, um, improve transportation? How do we move people faster? How do we fit into an evolving lifestyle and needs of our consumers? And so, um, that's an example of falling in love with a problem rather than the solution. And I think that's what technology has taught me is to always be forward thinking and being willing to reevaluate the way I'm showing up accordingly, um, because that constantly pivots. In fact, the analogy I use with my clients is um, growing a company is actually like changing sports. It's not like you, um, you play soccer or you play football and you go from like little, I don't know all the terminologies for how <laughs> these things, but you know, you, you don't go from like paying, playing on a team of 10 year olds to being semi-pro to being like on a, a whatever, and then going to a major league team. It's actually when you're a startup, maybe you're in Olympic swimming. And then when you move to a scale up, you're playing basketball and then you move to football. It's like every time you go to different stages of growth, the rules change. The definition of success is completely different. The mm-hmm. muscles you need to be successful in that stage are completely wildly different than, than before. Mm-hmm. And that's what can feel really unnerving. But if you fall in love with the problems rather than the solutions, you pivot very quickly on what type of employee do I need? What kind of resources do we need to do? How can we pivot our solutions, our product, our service that we're putting out there? That helps you change through these dramatic gear changes that happen during um, rapid scaling and growth of an organization. That's amazing and and really timely for me as well because I'm just I've just um, developed uh, the first MVP minimum viable product for a leadership app. So. Oh, cool. um, so very timely reminder of don't fall in love with a solution, mm-hmm. <laughs> but fall in love with a problem. And I think, you know, therein lies the challenge as well. And I think that's in, in many ways it makes life interesting because the problem is also always changing. You know, and I think True. if you if you look at post-pandemic where the the volume of change is actually accelerating. Mm-hmm. Even even in a recession, as budgets are tightening, the number of projects that the amount of change that we're that that organisations are going through, some of it driven by the pandemic, some of it driven by technology, some of it driven by the recession and various other market you know external forces, and um, we're all having to adapt much more quickly. And I think some of the skills that you've talked about are going to be needed even more I think the the people who are going to get left behind are the ones who are still saying I'm operating in my comfort comfort zone and I'm okay with that yeah well said what what keeps you awake at night Anne personally um not showing up enough in the world. So my, my individual mission statement after working in Silicon Valley for 15 years for some of the most impactful, innovative, now celebrity CEOs in the world. Um, I don't want to play it small. I've, I've seen, (laughs) I've been trained to think like them, but I didn't stay in Silicon Valley. I chose to move to Europe and I chose to do consulting because I really believe in democratizing success. I think the most important thing that can happen in technology is more participation, not less. We mm-hmm. we cannot have this consolidation of influence and power. It's in no one's best interest. So what I want to do is inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs, especially those who are currently underrepresented in tech, to show up, to start participating and creating some solutions that are different than some 
how a white guy in Silicon Valley might do it. I want more people participating. And it doesn't have to be the next Google or Amazon. It can be solving a problem in your community, solving um, representation or, or supporting an underrepresented group. And that really gets me excited. So it keeps me up at night when I think about, I get worried about how can I scale that? How can I help more and more people without you know, burning myself out? Those are the things I worry about those barriers to entry um, that I want to break down. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it? And in that, you know, what you're talking about is democratizing when we also have this celebrity culture of we, we grasp mm-hmm. onto these big figures mm-hmm. and, and people want to be like them. But as you say, most of them are white male and, mm-hmm. and therefore at least 50% of the population don't want to be like them. In fact, probably more because, you know, they are white male and they're not, mm-hmm. they're not actually the majority of the population. No. <laughs> um, so, so how would you encourage um, a startup to, to, to have that mindset to grow and scale and, and in a democratic and inclusive way? Being an entrepreneur can be really lonely. Uh, you feel, this is what I hear from my clients all the time. They feel like they're the only one who doesn't know what they're doing. Let me assure you, like no matter how senior you are, no matter if you're given the title of CEO or junior project manager, your first day in that chair, you're like, who gave me this job? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So A, just be comforted in that and and be open with the fact because that will allow you to bond with others. Two is find a community of like-minded, similarly staged people. Join an mm-hmm. accelerator or... Um, what's it called now I'm thinking in Spanish, but join like a group of, of people who are doing some solving similar problems or facing similar challenges, because Mm -hmm. one, there's so much comfort in knowing that you're not the only one Two, hopefully that saves you from reinventing a wheel that maybe someone else has already figured out. And three, it gives you an opportunity to pay it forward and to participate in a community that's also working on really interesting things that will pique your curiosity. Mm -hmm. And this is actually how you engineer serendipity. By putting yourself out there, being very open with the problems you're trying to solve, with the challenges you're facing, there's these connections, these moments of sparks of ideas that will come to you that won't if you're spending 15 hours a day in a conference room. That Mm -hmm. actually, if you're the leader and you are doing anything remotely innovative, you need to get out of your Zoom meetings. You need to be around people who are doing really interesting things and prioritize that. I know it can feel indulgent. This is really hard. I, I This is one of the hardest things I get my CEOs to experiment with because they just feel like, how can I justify taking that hour out of my day to think, to just sit there and think and brainstorm and, and daydream and problem solve? And then as soon as they do it, they, they see an immediate return on that investment because our brains cannot be innovative and creative when you don't give them space and, and quiet. Um, so for each of them, it, it looks slightly differently. It might be a lunchtime walk. It might be a morning hike or something with their dog, or just, it gets you out of your conference room and into ideally sunshine and fresh air and, um, being surrounded by interesting people doing interesting things. It's not actually indulgent. The return on investment is 10 X any other hour of your day, uh, in my experience. And thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much from you. So it's been fabulous. Thank you very much. I always enjoy talking to you, Jude. Thanks for having me. I'm impressed by Anne's ability to balance being a perfectionist by the willingness to fail in order to learn and apply that learning in innovation. Anne draws on Carol Dweck's book, Growth Mindset, to explain the importance of seeing failure as an opportunity to learn, even though, as she says, it's excruciatingly painful at times.
as we continue to lead change in organisations in a context of economic and political instability, as well as a cost of living crisis, having the resilience and growth mindset to lead through uncertainty becomes ever more critical. Where could you have an insatiable curiosity? And where is the opportunity for you to learn from failure? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company specialising in non-verbal behavioural change in leaders and teams. You can find out more about how I help leaders and teams communicate more effectively through change on my website, judejennison.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn. For now, keep leading, and I'll be back soon with another interview on leading through uncertainty.